0: All right, well, good morning again. This morning we're continuing on in our series in Acts, which is all about what the church is supposed to be. We're going to see four powerful things this morning about what the early church looked like, empowered by the Spirit, existing for His glory, that should be something that all churches today should use as a framework for challenging and encouraging us As churches today, in the modern day, 2021, some 2,000 years after the beginning of this text. And so I invite you to join along in Acts chapter 2. There's some passages you come to, I think I said this maybe a month or two ago when I came to a certain passage. There's certain passages you come to where, as a pastor, as a preacher, you just get up there and say, Don't mess it up because it's such a core, classic, simple text. Again, my goal today is just to get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit teach us because this is a core, classic, memorizable text that I encourage each of you to put onto your hearts and to memorize with your life and just have it roll off your lips as a believer in Jesus. So Acts 2, 42-47 is all about what makes the church unique. And so the title of today's sermon is The Church, Unique in the World, Um, And ultimately, the point is, what makes the church unique is not anything in and of ourselves that we'll talk about today. What makes the church unique is the uniqueness of our Christ. The uniqueness of our Savior is what makes the church unique. So everything else I say today will kind of come under that umbrella movement. And so we're continuing on in Acts, which talks about uh, how the church advances, how the church began and advances in the early days. And we've been using this phrase, God is on the move, to describe how Acts moves forward. And that is the case. So as we're looking at Acts today, look for evidences of how our God is on the move, even just in these short, simple verses this morning. Because this lays the foundation for everything that happens in Acts 3 and following, uh, with the miraculous things that the church does. So just by way of opening up, uh, I read, this is dated March 29th, 2021, that the city of Salem was recently named one of the 30 most charming small cities in the United States by Travel Magazine. One of the 30 most charming small cities in the whole country. And so I want to read uh, just a little bit of what, what, they, what they say about charming. Um, it says, it's impossible for most people to disassociate Salem from witches. Which is probably the case. If you were to say you live in Salem, Massachusetts, most people would know where you live, but primarily because of the infamous witch trials and the modern day emphasis on Halloween and witches. But it says, the site of the infamous witch trials of 1692 has so much more to offer visitors. The Peabody Essex Museum, uh i'm just I'm, I'm summarizing here it's a major early port of the north atlantic that has some superb buildings of the salem maritime national historic site as well as the friendship of salem the 170 foot uh, replica of 18th century trading ship and then it admits okay you're probably still wondering about the witches though uh, for there are dozens of museums and colonial mansions linked to the city's passage of history and there's even a 17th century wooden building known as the witch house and so in that passage of, of Travel Magazine, it says that there's really three or four things that Salem is known for. You've the Peabody Essex Museum, you've got the Salem Maritime Historical Site, and you have the Friendship of Salem ship. And I would add, if you talk to people today that maybe live on the North Shore or in New England, they would say, oh, Salem has some of the best restaurants on the North Shore, or oh, Salem has a great waterfront, or it has some really trendy shops. Or it's just, there's some really fun things to do. There's beautiful architecture. There's a number of things you could point to in Salem that say, this is what makes Salem unique, or charming, as they say. But ultimately, it kind of comes back to witches, doesn't it? Most people still, when they say Salem, they think of witches. And when it comes to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 it tells us four things that the early church was really known for. Four pillars or landmarks of the church, as some people have called them. These are things that you can't take these things away without taking away what the early church was all about or what the church always is to be about. And those four things are this, right here in in verse 42. The apostles' teachings, the fellowship or the common life, the breaking of bread, or the Lord's Supper, you could say. And finally, the prayers. Those are the four things that the church was known for. But just as Salem kind of comes back to the witches, ultimately what the church comes back to is Jesus. You have these four landmarks of the church, but ultimately what the church was known for in the early times was Jesus. This man who died on the cross and rose from the grave. And these people were transformed from regular fishermen or regular people into these exuberant evangelists who now had this living spirit in them. We saw last week they were speaking in different languages with that that spirit. And later on, we learn in Acts chapter 16, it says they turned these people have turned our world upside down in the Roman Empire. And it's because of this person, Jesus, that it comes back to. Jesus is what the church is to be known for today. His life, death, and resurrection. It builds off of verses 37 to 41 that we kind of went through quickly last week. But I'm going to go in reverse for just a second and look at those verses. Peter gives this long speech, this sermon, explaining how Jesus is who he says he is from the Old Testament. And then it says this, then it says, The people who heard it were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all people who are far off, whom the Lord calls to himself. That's what marks the foundation of the church. Repentance turning to Jesus, being baptized, finding forgiveness of sins, and then ultimately receiving this gift of the Holy Spirit. And then from that is breathed out this thing we call the church, which, as we read about in the children's story, is not a building, though beautiful as it is, is not the stained glass, though as spectacular as that is. It's the people It's the people. What is missing in verses 42 to 47 is a building, a church building. But what is incredibly present is a people, a people for God's own possession. This is what the church is. They went from 12 to 120 to last week. We saw 3,000 were added to its number. And then in verses 42 to 47, it begins to tell us what those 3,000 began to do what their day-to-day life looked like. So what is unique or charming then about these earliest believers? What can we learn about what the church is meant to be today? What makes the church unique is the uniqueness of its Christ, of its Savior. So three things I want to point out from this passage this morning, because I love threes. So here's three things again. Number one, I'm going to give you something that the church is and the church is not. Number one, the church is all in, not add on. The church is all in, not add on. Do you get what I mean by that? So oftentimes we think of the church as something that we simply take and add on to the rest of our life. So it's okay, I have my job, I have my family, I have my, my leisure activities. And now I'll add the church on top of that, and it's kind of one other thing that'll boost the spiritual side of my life. It'll make me a more religious person. Maybe I'll learn some things that'll help me be more peaceful or less anxious. And it's kind of like an add-on to life. But what we see about the earliest believers is it was never an add-on. It was never like, oh, this will help me out in my life. It was a, we're all in. The church now is my life. And all these other things are the things that are now surrounding being involved in the church, being part of this assembly, being part of this common life. And so, again, we think about a number of things that that we just add on. Gym memberships, a trip to the, to the spiritual supermarket, church being a holy place uh, that you get for a week of spiritual rest. That's not what the church is. It's not a place to exercise your spiritual muscles. It's a place to find all your life. Which I admit is super scary. That's super scary, I think. To say, I'm going to commit all my life to a people. People I don't know. People that are different than me. That's it's a risky business. And so what I, where I get this from in, in these verses is there's a word that pops up. I'm reading from the ESV. I think it's the same in the NIV. But verse 42, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Devoted themselves. And then verse 46, it says it similarly. It says, it's actually a different English word, but it says day by day, attending the temple together. Really that that word is the same word as devoted. There, it's they they devoted themselves to being part of the temple gathering. And what this word devoted is getting at is they were they were consisting repeatedly together. They were persisting. They were going forward all the time in the same things. These four things they did all the time. They were devoted. They were all in to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, to the fellowship, and to. Um, breaking of bread you know they were they were ruthlessly committed to this idea of the common life so here's my best attempt at an example when your favorite sports team like so maybe you have a favorite sports team maybe it's the red Sox. maybe it's the patriots maybe it's somebody else Um, but if you're really committed to them if you're devoted to them even when they stink you're gonna watch their games aren't you so when the Red Sox stink, there's some of you I know just can't, can't turn off the TV. You're going to watch them no matter what, because you're devoted to the Red Sox. And you're going to watch them even if they stink. And the church is the similar kind of way. They were saying, hey, we are all in. No matter what kind of happens, we're still sinful people. We are, we are all in, because we are relentlessly devoted to this idea. And so I remember, I've already said they were devoted to these four pillars, these four landmarks of the church. Let me just explain those briefly. They're, again, this is one of those things you just kind of get out of the way. They're pretty self-explanatory, but let me just make sure, just in case there's any misconceptions about what these things are. So the apostles' teaching, that's one of the things it says they were devoted to. This is super important, because it's not just they were devoted to teaching. They were devoted to what the apostles were teaching. Who are the apostles? Those are the people that were eyewitnesses. They spent three years with Jesus every single day. He taught them. He was their rabbi. He taught them everything he knew. And when he went back up into heaven, at the end of his Great Commission, he said, teaching all people to obey everything that I have commanded you. It's part of the Great Commission. He says, church, when I go and leave my Holy Spirit with you, it's your job to teach everything that I've commanded you. So the apostles just have this this storehouse of teaching that they've acquired through these years. And now that's what they're devoted to, is to keeping the integrity of that teaching. And so my greatest worry every Sunday when I stand up here to preach is that I will somehow, my, my greatest fear that I pray against is that I would lead you astray from what the apostles taught. Because that would heap punishment on me. I would then be receiving God's judgment for doing something that was disobedient to God. And if I ever do that, call me out because that's what these scriptures say. It says that you're devoted to the apostles' teaching. If I say something that doesn't sound like something Peter would teach or Paul would teach or any of these apostles, it's up to the church to correct it because that's what the church is committed to, the apostles' teaching. Number two is the fellowship. And I'm skipping that one because I have a whole point on it later in the sermon because it's kind of what the whole thing's about. The whole thing is about this fellowship together or this common life. But I'm going to get to that in a few minutes. Number three is the breaking of bread, which you can take in two ways. Number one is you could say this is the Lord's Supper, which Jesus commanded his disciples to always take, to take continually. So go to Luke 22. He says, do this in remembrance of me. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul commands them to to take it often. And so when the church gathers, we should have the Lord's Supper as a continual reminder of what we exist for, why we exist. We exist because Jesus laid down his life for us and gave himself as a ransom for us to redeem us from our sin. That's what the Lord's Supper continually reminds us. So our church practice is the first Sunday of every month. That's our way of being obedient to the continual taking of the Lord's Supper, which we do. But the other way you could take it is just the uniqueness of meals, of spending quality time together around a table. So a coffee hour is one even small attempt at that every Sunday to bring food and drink around and say, this is going to gather us around a table so we might be with one another continually. And there's something unique about Christianity and food, maybe even Baptist and food, actually, right? If we're honest with ourselves, potluck dinners are a great thing because they bring us together in our own unique ways. And that's why we love having tables that are open. You know, the parables of Jesus talk about not taking the seat of honor, but taking a step back so your guests can have a seat of honor. That's our, that's our spirit. The church always has an open space at the table for visitors. And that's where life and fellowship happens. Number four is the prayers, it says. Which is interesting, it doesn't say committing to prayer, which is certainly implied here, definitely it says they were committed to praying, but they were committed to the prayers, which in the early temple times, they, they had a morning prayer and an evening prayer where you could go together and do corporate out loud praying together as a body. But didn't Jesus pass along a pretty important prayer to his disciples that he said, you should pray this prayer uh, if you want to know how to pray? What did, what did, he, what did he tell his, his disciples to pray? He said, Pray like this Our Father, let's recite this together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom power, and the glory forever. Amen. That's what the early church was devoted to. That's why it's a beautiful thing for us to even be able to do that spontaneously. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. So commit that prayer to memory. John Wesley says, God will do nothing on earth except an answer to believing prayer, which is echoing what Jesus said in John 15. He says, apart from me, you can do Nothing. And prayer reminds us that. It helps us to lean heavily on him. So the church is all in on these things. All in on those four things. And we see that even deeper when it says they did this day by day. Look at verses 46 and 47. Day by day they attended the temple together and broke bread in their homes. And then it said they were praising God and the Lord added to their number day by day. The church is never about Sunday morning alone. It's about Monday to Saturday. It's about every day, every moment is a chance for the church to be the church, day by day. All in, not add on. That's the uniqueness of the church. Everything else in life, I think, only requires a little bit of you. The church asks for all of you because that's what Jesus wants. He wants your whole self. Number two, the second big point here, and this is where the fellowship part comes in. The church is common, yet it's uncommon. I'm confusing you now. The church is common, yet it's also uncommon. What are you talking about, Stephen? This is what I'm talking about. Number one is the church shared a uniquely common life. So when it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship, uh, one way you could look at this is they devoted themselves to, as it says later, sharing all things in common. So the word fellowship there is a beautiful Greek word named koinonia. Maybe you've heard that taught on before. But this idea of koinonia is not just fellowship, like a fellowship hour. But it's this idea of partnership. It's this idea of togetherness. It's this idea of mutuality. Meaning that what is yours is mine. What is mine is yours uh, it's this radical idea that we share everything in common. And that's a, it's a remarkable thing. I read an article this week uh, in the Marblehead Patch that was describing, this, this is what the headline was, quote, the Marblehead Counseling Center is seeing an unprecedented demand for services from adolescents, teens, and young adults. The co-director, or I'm sorry, the co-president uh, says, we have a large wait list, several hundred people actually. We are trying to close that gap, but the demand is so high that it's difficult for us. Quote, the mental health issues have exploded because of the isolation people have felt during the pandemic. It's been an, even, an uneven impact among young people, particularly people of color and seniors, and it's been a significant issue The anxiety around the whole period has been enhanced and people are seeking help. The church exists to bring all types of people into a common fellowship so that isolation, loneliness, anxiety, depression, all those things don't just disappear, but they now have a place where the real support, partnering, togetherness is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the church isn't asked to be a counseling center, but the church exists in part to bring all people in communication and in loving relationship with, the, with other people. Something that our, our world and our cities desperately need right now. Coming out of this pandemic, people are lonely and they're depressed and they're anxious. The statistics are staggering. And our church, if we can be a warm people that invites people in uh, and they experience true community... That is something that they won't find anywhere else in the world. It's unique. And this is part of what the early church discovered. Part of this, too, is that the, the common life that the early church had was they were in house churches. Again, they didn't have a big church building. They, they existed by meeting in people's homes. And oftentimes it even, it even implies that people sold their homes here. So in verse, is it 44, 45, they were selling their possessions. Some translations say they were selling their property so that they could come together and live under one roof together. Now, I'm not asking you guys to go sell your property and move into the church building. That's not the point of this sermon. But the point of this is that they were all in again. This was They were, had everything in common. And yet it's so uncommon because you don't see this anywhere else in the world. You don't see people doing this uh, in a way that's quite like what the church was doing. Did you know that in 1804, when this church was first founded... Do you know where it originally met? It says it right in the book out there on the foyer. They met in a house on Cambridge Street in downtown Salem. And then they moved to Federal Street later. Yeah, so they were originally, they, when they, the first ones originally gathered, they were meeting in a house in Cambridge Street, according to our history. And there's something unique about that. And even as we have a building, which is an immense gift, we still have homes that we can invite people into. And so the way we relate to one another, it says, verse 44, they were, they were together. Verse 46, it says they were together. And we're together only through the person of Jesus. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a classic book that I can recommend to you guys called Life Together, which gets at this whole idea of fellowship. And what he describes the church as, and all of relationships as, is he says, you have a person here and you have a person here. And the only way they can truly relate to one another is if Christ is in the middle of the two of them. The only way you can truly understand and be in true fellowship with each other is if Christ is the one that is binding that relationship together. So that's why on the front of the bulletin, another uh, theologian, Henry Nouwen, says this. He says, fellowship is the Christ in you that recognizes the Christ in me. That's when true fellowship or communion or the common life Comes together, And that's uncommon in our world. Radically uncommon in our world. Let me move on to my last point. My last point is this. And this is how the passage ends. It says that they were praising God and had favor with all people. But it's also how it begins. In verse 43 it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So this is the last point. The church is miraculous, but it's not extraordinary or extraordinary. What do you mean by that again, Stephen? You're confusing me with your points today. This is what the inner dialogue is saying in my head right now. You're, you're, you're putting these things next to each other that seemingly shouldn't go next to each other. You said the church is common, but it's uncommon. Now you're saying the church is miraculous, but it's not extraordinary. What are you talking about? Here's what I mean. The church is ruthlessly relentlessly uh, amazingly ordinary the things we do we show up week by week to to sing to eat bread to listen to each other to talk with one another to listen there's nothing extraordinary about those kind of things that happens in a lot of places there's nothing extraordinary about what the church really does. They, it's just people getting together and relating to one another and, and worshiping and singing and very ordinary things. But when the Holy Spirit is part of that fellowship and when Christ is in the middle of the two people, or in this case, 50 people, and we're relating to each other through Christ, what happens is miraculous. Look around this room. This is a miraculous gathering of people. And what happened in the early church was when people saw this, verse 43, people were in awe. Because this does not happen in Rome. People of different backgrounds do not come together in Rome. And yet here they are. And the apostles had wonders and signs that were being done not by them, through them. The apostles were just showing up, doing what they were told, ordinary things. And yet miraculous signs and wonders were being done through them. In verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is grace, my friends. This is what God does. He takes ordinary people, puts them in a room, binds them together through Christ, empowers them with his Holy Spirit, and miracles happen. Miraculous signs and wonders happen. And he can still do that today. And he does in our lives all the time. I think the most miraculous thing here is verse 47. It said the church had favor with all people. Do you know how hard that is? Think about in our society today. Imagine if if the Christians in the world had favor with all people. That's a miracle. That is the work of God happening. And if he can do it in the early church, he can do it through us. What if we had favor with all people? What if we loved people with a love that was miraculous but not extraordinary? What if we were the church that looked like this early church? What all this results in is praise. Verse 47, it says, all this, all these four things led to them praising God. Ultimately, the church is a people of praise. And so in just a moment, we're going to stand up and sing a really simple ordinary song called the doxology which do you know what doxa means praise because that's what the church does we praise god from whom all blessings flow and it's going to be a very simple yet beautiful way for us to finish our service today as being people of praise that's what christians are people of praise who give glory to god for what he has done the Psalms say it over and over. Give praise to the Lord because he is good and his love endures forever. My final thought here to conclude. As the church is unique, it's unique because of the uniqueness of our Christ. I was thinking about um, this Memorial Day weekend. A lot of people go away for vacation or to go visit places. And One of the places people love to visit, whether it's the Northeast or the West or the South, is in our country, people go to national parks. So maybe you've been to Acadia or to Yellowstone or to somewhere. Think about how unique that is. I read someone that said, the creation of the national parks may be the most righteous thing America has ever done. It says, Yellowstone was the first ever national park in the world. Other nations followed. It may be America's best idea. It's America's best idea because it's consistent with humanity's original vocation is to care for our world. National parks are unique because they're so different. They're a set-apart place that shows us God's beauty. I think very similarly that's what the church is. It's a national park that God has set apart to bless the world as a place of rest and hope and joy in the midst of a trying world. And we are those people who rest in those places. Let me finish in prayer and then we'll sing the doxology together. Father, may you bless this people, bless this church by helping us to lean heavily on those four pillars, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Lord, we give ourselves to you. We are your people, people of praise. May we be reflective of that in our city and in our time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.